Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'll invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Michael asked me if I would preach this morning uh, a message about humility um, that we had had it refresh this year. And so um, we're going to be talking about humility this morning. And I hope this message will be an encouragement to you. In February of this year, 99-year-old Billy Graham passed into eternity. Throughout his life, Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people live than anyone in human history. 215 million people in 185 countries, it's estimated. And uh, he said, I have one message, that Jesus Christ came. He died on a cross. He rose again. And he asked us to repent of our sins and receive him by faith as Lord and Savior. And if we do, we have forgiveness of all of our sins. When 9-11 happened, the airports across America were shut down. And as you remember, there was a memorial service in the National Cathedral in Washington following the September 11th attacks. And there was one plane with a civilian on it in the air that day. And it was a plane carrying Billy Graham from a crusade, I think he was in Mexico, taking him to Washington. He helped train 23,000 evangelists in 208 countries to carry the gospel message. He prayed with every U.S. president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor. And he was voted as one of the top most admired men, top, one of the top 10 most admired men, 55 consecutive years. Yet what did he say of himself? He said, I, there's been times when I thought I was dying and I saw my whole life before me. And when I stood before the Lord in my mind, I didn't say I'm a preacher and I preach to many people. He said, oh Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. He said, I still need the cross. If you watch Billy Graham in interviews, he was so humble. People said when they met him, he was the most humble man they'd ever met. That he made you feel like you were the most important person in the room rather than him making you think he was the most important person in the room. He said, who am I? I'm just a North Carolina farm boy who's encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before one of his crusades, backstage, a man went into the restroom, and over in one of the stalls, he could hear someone crying out to God, Oh, God, don't let me bring shame to your name. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit. Oh, God, use me today. And Billy Graham, before his crusade, was in the stall on his knees crying out to God in dependence. We see the depth of humility and yet the favor and grace of God joined together. And that's what we see in Scripture as well. That before the Lord, humility is God's key to Him placing His hand upon you. James chapter 4 says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do prideful people get on your nerves? 
Like, you don't mind. Am I the only, only one? They get on my nerves and they... When people are bragging, you know, that they're the me monster, they're always talking about themselves, and enough about me, now let's talk more about me. You know, it just, it bothers you, you know? It's interesting that pride in other people bothers us, but we tolerate our own pride. You know, our pride is different. That's our pride talking, you know. But this is a lifelong battle for all of us. In 1 John 2, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So many things that we do are ultimately so that we can brag about what we've accomplished or show off or be able to stand head and shoulders over someone else to say that we have triumphed. The word pride means to shine over and above. We want to outshine the people around us. At the high school reunion, we want to outshine them with what we've accomplished. We want our kids to outshine their kids. We want our house to outshine our neighbors. We want our accomplishments to outshine our siblings or our friends or other people. To outshine. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, all that comes out of the heart of man, murder, wickedness, adultery, deceit, fornication, slander, pride. He says, all of these evil things defile a person from within, but we are bent towards pride. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think we're more important than the people who are around us. We think what we have to say is more important than what they have to say. We think what we want is more important than what they want the audacity of our pride. Every sin that we're committing, we're giving ourselves permission to do things God has not given us permission to do. Every time we brag, we're giving ourselves credit for things that God has accomplished in us, around us, or through us. Every one of our besetting sins is tied to a level of pride in us that we think it's okay, though it's not okay for others. All of our stubbornness, our marriages struggle because of pride. We think we're more important than our partner. We get angry when we get hurt because how could someone mistreat me that way? We get bitter. We get offended when somebody outshines us. We're insecure in our response. Rather than rejoicing over their success in love, we're upset or envious or jealous because of our pride. And so there's this universal theme in Scripture that God hates pride. It is cancer of the heart. It is toxic to everything that we do. And it is a lie that we tell ourselves in denial of who we are and who God is. God is creator. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's holy. He's set apart. He's infinitely higher than we are. He's not just a little bit better than we are. He's infinitely. He's holy, 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 so far set apart from where we are. His ways are infinitely better than our ways. His thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts. It would be like trying to reach out and touch a star for us to comprehend the awesomeness of who God is. He is so beyond us, yet we think we're better 
than him, or that we know better than him, or that what we want is more important than what he wants. It's pride. Why did Satan fall from heaven? Pride. How did Satan tempt Eve? You will be like God. Pride. How did Satan tempt Jesus? He tried to appeal to, if you are the son of God, then you'll do this. You want to have everything in this world? Then you'll sin. And Satan's temptation for you and I is to make decisions out of pride. But Scripture communicates that God has humbled the proud. He is humbling the proud, and he will humble the proud. He gives grace, and he blesses, and he empowers those who will humble themselves. And so you see people stepping into a situation in Scripture, walking in pride, and you always see God stepping in and humbling them. Jacob, in his cleverness, outwits his brother. And God, in his greater cleverness, outwits Jacob. Joseph sees himself as rising and his brothers bowing down before him. I'm the ruler. I'm the favored one. And what does God do? He takes him on a journey to humble him, break him. And then when Joseph stands before Pharaoh in the book of Genesis, and Pharaoh says, can you interpret the dream? Joseph had learned the lesson because he said, I cannot do it, but God can. He'd received the message of the humbling of the Lord in his life. God prefers the humble. He reaches past a Saul and he grabs a David. He reaches past the prideful warriors and he picks a Gideon who says, I'm the least of the least, the least tribe. Who am I? God says, you're the one I'm going to do great things through. Proverbs 16 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord because we're lying to ourselves and God sees the lie. So in Romans 12, it says, for I say that through the grace that is given to me, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. Galatians 6 says, if a man thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So in Philippians chapter 2, God gives us an awesome dose of, of humility. The humility of man is awakened by the holiness of God. Another way of saying that is the higher and greater we see that God is, the more we realize how low and less and weak we are. Every time someone encounters God in Scripture, in all of his glory, they're overwhelmed by his awesomeness. Job, the Bible says, was the most righteous man who ever lived. God said that of him. And yet Job in all of his speeches, said, I want to be able to defend myself before God. He started questioning, why am I suffering? He cared for the poor. He reached out to the fatherless. He prayed for his children. He was a good, good man, the Bible says. But when Job encountered God, he was overwhelmed. In Job 38, God said, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He's speechless. Job, God says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and the dawn? Can you send forth the lightning, Job? Who has given the mind its understanding? Do you have an arm like God? 
And then God challenges Job with these words in Job chapter 40. God says, adorn yourself with eminence and majesty. Clothe yourself with honor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And then he says, and look on everyone who is proud and make them low, Job. Look on everyone who is proud and you humble him. So Job put his hand over his mouth and he said, oh God, I've spoken too much. He says, I am humbled before you. What happened to Isaiah when he encountered the holiness of God? Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. He realized suddenly, in light of God's holiness, how wicked and sinful he was. Proverbs says, when you're in the presence of the king, do not exalt yourself and put yourself in the high honorable place, because then the king will humble you and put you down. It says, but if you will humble yourself and put yourself in the low seat, the king will call you up and honor you. And that is a picture of what God does throughout Scripture. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogancy in the evil way. So there's this theme throughout Scripture of God hating the foolish, arrogant boasting of man. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Because all those things are from the Lord. He says, But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So everything you see God doing, he does it in such a way so that no man can boast. Salvation is by grace through faith. Not of your own works or good deeds. Why? So that no man can boast. And yet when anything good happens to us, there's this temptation for us to exalt ourselves in pride. And a good blessing can become a curse if we become prideful as a result of it. If you think about all the things that we chase in life, almost all of them, if we get it, would lead to pride. We want success. We want possessions. We want accomplishments. We want honor. We want the spotlight. And when we get it, if we're not careful, it can lead us to pride. Wealth, Scripture says, can cause us to become prideful. Money can cause us to think we have power or that we're better than someone else. In the book of James, though, James flips that upside down on its head. The book of James was written to the Jews. He says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. But the Jews were used to Deuteronomy 28 kind of blessings. God says in Deuteronomy 28 in the Old Testament, if you hearken diligently into the voice of the Lord your God, if you obey him, you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed in the storehouse. You'll be the head, not the tail. You'll be the lender, not the borrower. You'll be above and not beneath. And when they heard this, and then, he, then they hear, and, but if you disobey the Lord, you dishonor him, you'll have all these consequences for sin. And those things were true. God did that with his people. But in the New Testament, he's writing to these poor, persecuted Jews. And almost every chapter of James, he, he speaks warning to the wealthy, and he honors the poor. James chapter 1, let the 
man of low decree rejoice in his excellent exaltation, but let the wealthy man rejoice in his humiliation because it will be taken away from him. James chapter 4, come now you business people who say, we're going to do this, we're going to go in this city, we're going to accomplish this, we're going to buy and sell, we're going to make money. He said, you must say if the Lord wills, it will happen. James chapter 5, come now you wealthy people. He says, your riches are moth-eaten. He says, you're holding back from your labors that you should be paying. He says, you're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. He says, judgment is coming upon you. And in James chapter 2, God says, if a poor man comes into the church, don't you dare treat him worse than the rich man. He says, if a wealthy person comes in your church and you say, oh, sit in this higher place. Good stewardship. This is a big tither. We need to treat them better than the other people. These other people that walk in who who haven't had a bath in a few days, or they're wearing old clothes, or they, they, have, they have bad breath, or they're missing teeth, or they, you know, they, whatever the issue is with them. And James says, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Because the rich man just throws his money at any problem, but the poor man has to get on his knees and cry out to God to meet his needs. And he grows in faith. And then James warns about the prideful, wealthy rich. He says, do they not throw you, cast you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the name of the Lord? So there's this warning that accompanies wealth, that when we get a raise, we should thank the Lord, but we should also say, oh Lord, guard my heart, that I don't think I am better than anyone else. You've given me more to share with those who have less. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, The praise of men. When we receive the praise of men, we tend to elevate ourselves in pride. I'm better than someone else. That's the greatest message I have ever heard preached. I found out when people say that, what they're really saying is that's the greatest message that I've heard today. (laughs) Because I'll say it to somebody else next week. That's the best movie I've ever seen. What they really mean is of all the movies I've seen, that one's the most recent The devil will either send the criticism or he'll send those to puff you up. So any level of success, we have to guard our hearts. Because if we soak in the praise that only belongs to the Lord, it feels good for a few seconds, and then it rots us from within. Because we don't know how to handle glory that belongs to the Lord. So Scripture says, be grateful instead. Be grateful. Oh, Lord, every good thing that I have is because of you. Every good gift is from you. Lord, I'm grateful to you. I want your hand to be upon me, Lord. So, Lord, help me not to become prideful. Who was the most humble man on the face of the earth? Well, in Moses' day, the Bible says it was Moses. In John the Baptist's day, Jesus says no man born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. But if you look at John the Baptist, his whole life was not about himself. It was about Jesus. He said, I must decrease. Christ must increase. He said, I'm not here for me. I'm here to prepare you for him. So because John the Baptist humbled himself, Jesus honored him. But more than that, Philippians 2, I want to argue, communicates that Jesus was the most humble man on the face of the earth. He said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. 
So in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, we're going to read this morning. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. We need to be like John the Baptist in every conversation. The person I'm talking to is more important than me. The person that I'm arguing with is more important than me. The needs of the person in front of me are more important than my needs. What would happen in the church if churches who call themselves Christians had that mentality? That the people in the community, those people that go to Sherwood Baptist Church, every time I talk to one of them, I feel valued and loved and important. They don't come with haughtiness and pride and arrogance, easily offended and easily angered. They come with a servant's mentality. I feel valued and loved when I'm around them. How would people be drawn to the church if we had that mentality? How would our conversations change if we became other-centered in our conversations? I've been telling my kids, be genuinely interested in other people. Shut up and listen. They are also God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. They've got a treasure inside their heart. They've got experiences. They've got wisdom you need to learn. Start asking questions and learn about them. Find out what God's done in them. Find out what messages God has taught them. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, when you're in a conversation with other people, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But instead, you speak to the need of the moment in their life. If they're hurting, comfort them. If they need direction, give it to them. If they need counsel, if they need encouragement, if they need a listening ear, you serve the people in front of you. Think about all the people you love to be around. Aren't they more humble? Aren't they more other-centered? You are more important than me. How would our marriages improve if both spouses took that mentality? How would our relationships with our neighbors improve? So Jesus, in this passage, when he gets to verse 5, he says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now he talks about the humbling of Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So think about this. Jesus is God with all the pleasures and the joys and, and the uh, rights as God. And he does this huge step down. It's not a tiny step. It's a massive length where he, he empties himself. The Bible says he, he uh, did not a, a consider equality with God something to be held tightly to, is what one translation says. And he steps down to become a man. But then there's this perpetual humbling of Jesus. Then as a man, he didn't walk around, serve me, serve me. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. So it's this huge step down, humbling himself, willing to serve. And it says he took on himself the form of a bond servant or a bond slave. This is the lowest of the low. When, when Noah cursed Ham, he said, your son Canaan, here was the curse. He'll be a servant of servants. 
When Joshua cursed the Gibeonites, he said, your curse is you will now be a slave and a servant of other people. But Jesus embraced it. In Isaiah 53, he took on himself the form of a servant, bore our sins upon himself on the cross. So this whole idea of becoming a bond slave, becoming a servant, esteeming others as more important than himself, everywhere Jesus went, he's valuing the people who are around him. And it says he humbled himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant. But then, because he never sinned, he should have never died. But he takes another step down, willing to die. And of all the deaths to die, not the guillotine, not lethal injection, not something painless, but he's willing to take even the death of the cross, something, the worst death of all. Verse 5, let this same attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Perpetual humbling of yourself. Look in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So in John chapter 13, I'm so amazed at this passage. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and it says, knowing that his hour had come for him to depart out of the world, knowing he'd loved his own until the end, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he'd come from God and was going back to God, got up from supper took a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. What? That's almost like saying someone knowing they'd just been elected president of the United States, knowing they'd just taken on the most prominent position in the most powerful nation in the world, rang my doorbell and said, can I clean your toilet? We're like, what? That doesn't make sense. But that's what Jesus did. He humbling himself in every situation. Let this same mentality being you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I want to give you three points to take away with you. The first one is embrace the gospel as a sinner in need of a Savior. Embrace the gospel as a sinner in need of a Savior. Because God keeps putting down the proud, and he keeps raising up the humble. Well, who humbled himself more than anyone? Jesus. So look at verse 10. No, verse 9. So after this humbling of himself, look at what God does to Jesus. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those that are in heaven and those that are on earth and those that are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he humbled himself more than anyone, God exalts him higher than everyone. And you and I, whether we do it in this life or in the life to come, will bow our knees to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But we have the privilege of doing it now by our own volition. And there is no greater joy than to embrace Christ, to have your sins forgiven, to be set free from the bondage and the guilt of sin, for his Holy Spirit to be deposited in your heart, for him to call you to serve you, serve him with your life, and for his love and joy and peace by his Holy Spirit to fill your heart. Why would anyone not want to do that? Amen. So if a person doesn't know Christ, they must embrace the cross of Christ and what he's done. But did you know the cross and the gospel has been designed in such a way 
to only appeal to those who are willing to humble themselves. The road to salvation, you have to walk through a door that you have to stoop to get through. God has given us a gospel that appeals to the poor, that appeals to the abased. It doesn't appeal to prideful people. They think it's foolishness or stupid. Turn left to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This has been blowing my mind recently as I've been studying this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, you're going to see the Lord. It's like he uniquely designed the kid's water fountain to be so low that only kids will use it. And he uniquely designed the gospel so that prideful, arrogant, self-righteous people who are wise in their own eyes will think it's stupid and foolish and walk away from it. But those who are willing to humble themselves and face the reality of their own sinfulness and need are those that will embrace it and enjoy the benefits of the gospel. So it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, using the, the gospel, and the cleverness of the, cle- the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews are asking for a sign. I want to see a miracle. Jesus, show me a sign. But the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, like Billy Graham preached around the world. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many of you mighty, not many of you noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. It's interesting as we have traveled around the nation and are meeting believers around the nation. And you talk to hundreds and hundreds of believers. It's amazing to me how many of them, when you meet them, they didn't sit at the cool table in high school. They would never be cast as the lead in a movie. They wouldn't be elected president of the whatever. They wouldn't be welcome in the IBM executive meeting. So many of them, I'm thinking, this guy's using bad English, and he's missing teeth, and he's out of shape, and he's wearing a goofy T-shirt, and his wife has a haircut from the 80s. But yet when you talk to them, there's this love of Jesus. There's this gratefulness for their salvation. There's this faith of what God has been doing in their life. 
And it's not just a few of them, it's most of them. It's most of us, and we're not all that either. And we see in this passage, consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise in the flesh. Not many of you were mighty. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame. He says in verse 28, and the base things of the world, the despised in this world, God has chosen. The things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man can boast before God. To embrace Jesus Christ, you have to humble yourself. You have to admit, you know what? I'm actually not all that. I'm a sinner who has lied and is deceived and lusted and hated and been a racist and been selfish and prideful and angry. And every sin in my life, I have to take credit for. And God deserves to kick me out of heaven. But yet through the humbling of Christ and through the cross of Christ, I can have forgiveness for free? No, I have to earn it. I have to perform to get that. God says, no, (laughs) you could never earn it. You have to receive it as a free gift so that you'll never boast about it. So this morning, embrace the gospel as a sinner in need of a Savior. When Bill Maher came out with the documentary Religious He spends the entire time mocking believers and Christians. He thinks, this is so stupid. This is so foolish. And he's illustrating this passage. That if you're not willing to humble yourself, you're not going to get it. Number two, embrace your role and identity as a bondservant of God. Let this same mindset be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. When you realize Jesus is the great treasure in a field, you're willing to give all that you have to have him. And those that encountered Christ, Paul in all of his pride was broken and humbled and he embraces Jesus. His life is transformed. And then if you read in Romans and you read in Philippians, Paul calls himself, how did he introduce himself? The bond slave of Christ, the servant of Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, James chapter 1, James a bondservant of God and Jesus Christ. Peter refers himself, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Christ. John, the beloved disciple in the book of Revelation, I'm the bondservant of Christ. And it's our calling too. Your identity needs to first be a servant of Christ before anything else. If, if you're a pastor before you're a servant, then you're in trouble. If you're a servant first, And then a pastor, now you've got things rightly in order. If you're the president of a company first, before you're a servant, you've got things out of order. But if you're the servant of Jesus Christ, then you're ready to lead the people. Whatever your title or position, it needs to take a back seat to that you're the bond slave of Christ. I'm here to do the will of my master. Every company is looking for willing servants. Every season and every job and every town, they're looking for people who are willing to serve. Every government is looking for servant-hearted citizens. Every man wants a wife with a servant's heart. Every wife wants a husband with a servant's heart. What is the secret to promotion at work? Serve your boss willingly. What's the secret to friendship? 
Serve the people around you. Jesus said, first I called you servants, and then I called you friends. If you want to have deeper friendships, focus in on serving those that are around you. Thirdly, embrace God's discipline as he humbles you. Paul was humbled by the Lord, and God still gives him a thorn in the flesh. He said, to keep me from getting prideful because God wants to keep using him. Paul says, therefore, I rejoice in my weakness because then God is made strong in me. Romans 8, 28 and 29, God is using all things together for good in our lives to make us like Jesus. So what if you viewed the painful circumstances, the humbling circumstances, the tough circumstances that you go through, through the lens that God in his love, is making you like Jesus. He's humbling you so that he can mightily use you in the future. What if instead of being angry over what you've been going through, Lord, what are you doing? He says, I'm answering your prayers to make you more pleasant to be around, to make you more fruitful in your life, to make you more loving, to help you bring me more glory. What if you viewed your problems through the lens of God is working all things together for good to make me like Christ, to humble me so he can use me? Not just once, but every day. For the fragrance to fill the house, the jar has to be broken. And for Christ to shine through you, you have to be broken. And in his love for you, his plan is that as you humble yourself, he'll place his hand of grace upon you and be glorified through you, and people will see Jesus shine through you. So my question to you this morning is, do you want God's grace, or, you do, or do you want the momentary thrill of soaking in the glory that will rot you later on? Let's humble ourselves and pray. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've got some really good news for you. The Bible says that God sent Jesus to die on the cross and rise again from the grave. This is a historic fact. This is not a theory. And that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. White, black, young, old, rich, poor, wise, foolish, whoever is willing to humble themselves, repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, the Bible says he will save you and forgive you and change you from within. So this morning, the message of the Bible is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And this morning, during an invitation time in just a moment, as we stand and sing in just a moment, we want to invite you to humble yourself and step out into an aisle Come down front. There'll be ministers down front to receive you and for you to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. This morning is an opportunity for you to do that. And there's no greater thing you could ever do with your life than to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, if you think about the besetting sins in your life, those are connected to besetting pride in your life. 
If you think about the anger in your heart, it's often connected to pride. If you think about the contentions and the bitterness, the insecurities, it's connected to your pride. And God in his love wants to set you free from all of that toxic poison in your heart. But it's going to require you to humble yourself. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, use me. Would you pray this morning? Surrender your heart to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we are all needy daily of every breath that you provide and every heartbeat that you give. And we need the grace of God on our lives. Lord, we can't produce spiritual eternal fruit. We can't change anyone's heart. We can't answer our own prayers without your intervention, Lord. Lord, we need your help and your grace every day. Lord, I pray you would save the lost. Pray, Lord, you would help us as a church. Esteem others as more important than ourselves. That we would be like Jesus, willing to obey at all costs, whatever you lead us to do. We pray you would use us, Lord. You'd fill us with your spirit. And you would make us like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing. And you come as God leads.